Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to the March 14th edition of Week to Week, the political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipper, your host for Week to Week, and I'm glad you defied the atmospheric river to come out here and join us tonight. Thank you. Um, Today we have a lot to talk about, including abortion and pharmacies, Fox News, banking troubles, and more. So stick around. Let's meet our panelists for tonight. I'll start on the far end of the stage there with Melissa Kane. She's the host of the Get Out the Bet podcast. She's also a political analyst, journalist, and attorney. You can follow her on Twitter at Constitution Mel. Welcome back, Melissa. Thank you. Next to her is Tim Miller, a writer at large at The Bulwark. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell. And uh, he's on Twitter at TimoDC. Next to me is actually our first experiment with artificial intelligence. Dan (laughs) Schnur digitized, uploaded to Skynet, and he's going to be joining us here. Actually, uh, Dan is a professor at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communications. He's also a professor at the University of California, Berkeley's Institute of Government Studies. And he's on Twitter at Dan Schnur. So welcome, Dan, remotely. Thanks so much for having me, John. I appreciate it. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Um, let's start with this economic story that uh, quickly took on political dimensions. Uh, the collapse of these two mid-sized banking institutions. Over the weekend, the federal government took actions to protect depositors and helped find purchasers for the company. Tim, Republican voices today have been offering a number of choices for who or what should be blamed. Uh, what do you make of their, their claims and who do you think should be blamed? I think that it was obviously the fact that Silicon Valley Bank uh, uh, acknowledged Lesbian Day and that they <laughs> single black on their board. That's the Wall Street <laughs> Journal pointed out. Must have been the reason why they collapsed. I don't know, because definitely non-woke all boys clubs banks have never had any problems. <laughs> Um, I, look, I, I, it's, it's pretty, I guess it is easy to make fun of. And like the Wall Street Journal column in particular, the one that cited the fact that he's like, I'm not saying that 12 white men would have done better, but I'm kind of saying 12 white men would have done better. <laughs> um, was, uh, was right. Like not even, you can't even qualify it as a racist dog whistle because it was just so overt. And, and it would be the kind of thing that you would want to just dismiss, right? It's like these, these are like the crazy guys in Republican conservative social media, but, um, DeSantis is pushing it. You know, like the, the person who's supposed to be, you know, the more sane or whatever, the more rational like version of MAGA was offering the same rationale. I, you know, said that it was they were distracted by DEI measures as if like, you know, putting up a rainbow flag prevented them from looking at their, you know, at their bond, at the interest rates on the on the bonds investments that they'd made. Uh, like the whole thing is so absurd. So, you know, Nikki Haley, to her credit, um, at least gave like a based in reality, like critique of, um, of the, uh, of the, let's not call it a bailout bailout. Right. And, you know, sort of making the, you know, sort of tea party ish era, uh, argument that, you know, that the taxpayer, you know, we shouldn't be spreading this risk around the taxpayer shouldn't be covering for, you know, these, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, Silicon Valley, you know, bank CEOs that acted improperly. Uh, you know, I, like to me on balance, like, 
you know, Biden did what he had to do, right, to to prevent the contagion, you know, from from going on to other banks. And I think that, you know, the the most substantive criticism you could give is that is that maybe, you know, some of the juicing of the economy from COVID, you know, from the COVID stimulus, you know, caused some of the inflation, which has caused the Fed to have to respond and raise interest rates, which which ultimately led to Silicon Valley Bank, you know, getting screwed over the stupid bets that they made. So like there is some maybe triple bank shot tangential <laughs> policy argument that you could make to criticize Biden, but but none of these guys are actually serious enough to make that argument and they're out here making stupid cultural war arguments instead. Melissa, how do you think the government has responded? Uh, well, first of all, I agree, um, of course, as usual, with everything that, that, that Tim had to say, it seems um, I have no love or sympathy for the folks who are making the really objectively terrible decisions that that led to this at the bank. And I, I, I've been told they're all going to be fired. I certainly hope that they are. Um, but but it does remind me of, of 2008 when there was the, the, the actual bailouts um, where Barack Obama just had to basically stand up and go, I get it. Um, but it was either this or total economic meltdown. And so if the, cha- if the choices are backstop or even bailout, this, you know, pool of idiots um, or cause a whole bunch of bank runs that close down a whole bunch of banks. Well, then, you know, I don't think that, um, you know, that, that people would, you know, you can stand on principle all day when you're not in the room having to make the decision. But the people who are in the room having to make the decision, I think on, you know, on the whole, did the right thing. They're going to get a bunch of stuff thrown at them. But politically, it didn't hurt Barack Obama in the long run. I think people still wish people had gone to jail and things like that. But, uh, you know, it didn't. He went on to get reelected. And, you know, ultimately, it, the fact that sort of it did not um, and there were a lot of impacts, but that it didn't actually cause an economic meltdown was something that that was that was something that was useful to him and good for him. And he was man, he managed to survive. And I think Biden will, you know, there'll be an initial, you know, a lot of chatter. But I think as long as it doesn't explode into other things. You know, a fun fact I read this week about about TARP, about that Bush Obama bailout as a defender, as a moderate defender of the Uniparty. Mm-hmm. Um, I read today that in the end, you know, after all of the righteous anger that was righteous in a certain way, it kind of dissipated. Uh, the troubled assets, TARP is the troubled asset relief project, the troubled assets that the government got ended up uh, uh, um, uh, accruing benefit to the taxpayer. Like in the, like in the very long haul over, over the, you know, however many years that they eventually had to sell off all those assets, they ended up making more money than the taxpayers paid out in that bailout. Nobody really knows like, knows or cares about that, right? Because there was all this righteous anger in the moment. And then, you know, by the time it happens, it's a news story in Bloomberg, you know, in 2015. It's like, hey, guess what? We ended up making money on TARP. But like a lot of times these are decisions that have to be made. And that, that actually what Paulson, you know, did ended up being smart and right. And like, thank God he did it, really. Oh, and the other, you know, so I was watching the big short again the other, I just said nothing to do with this before the Silicon Valley Bank thing just happened to be. And, and one of the things that makes me so crazy about that movie and that, and that moment in history is the, um, the failure of the credit agencies, the failure of the auditing of the accounting firms. Um, and here we see yet again, um, where Moody's where you know KPMG gives them the stamp of approval, where Moody's the day after decides to downgrade them, you're like, oh, thanks guys, thanks for thanks for joining in here. Um, you know what I mean? Like once again, we you know there are serious reforms that need to be made on on various levels, and I really hope that this leads to once again a revisiting of the really truly 
um, terribly messed up credit agency, um, you know, problem that we have with the way that they rate things and the way the 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 way that they end up sort of competing with each other and how that drives down accountability overall. Sure, Dan, what do you make of this as well, both from the current political hit, but as possible down the line impacts of this? I think Tim and Melissa gave a a really good overview of this, but looking at the politics of it, as they correctly pointed out, Biden suffers somewhat politically by being accused of a bailout and explaining that depositors are bailed out, but that investors aren't is a somewhat difficult point to make to a to a mass audience. That said, the small political hit that Biden takes by doing a quote unquote bailout is tiny compared to the political damage he would suffer and the economic damage that the country would suffer if the government hadn't weighed in uh, in this matter. So the far right and the far left are both going to use the word bailout language. And I suspect the White House is philosophical enough to think, all right, we'll take the small hit, but if we avoid the much bigger and more substantive one, that's a reasonable trade-off. <laughs> to Tim's point, and I think it's a smart one, to me, the biggest difference in the politics of it right now is the Democratic message is a consistent one. They're saying Trump did this. And when the legislation passed in 2018, it was supported by all Republicans, by a small uh, a, by a small number of Democrats, but ultimately signed by the president, relaxing the standards. Republicans have a much less consistent message. You have some of what I call the more responsible members of the caucus, Representative McHenry, Representative Hill, and others, talking about the potential impact that Tim mentioned that inflation has had first on interest rates and then on the challenges the banks are are facing. Then you have other obviously much less responsible voices talking about woke investors and the evils of diversity and so on. As my point is, as long as the Republicans are offering several different accusations and the Democrats are offering just one, then that's a Democratic political advantage. If at some point in the weeks ahead, either Kevin McCarthy or Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or someone articulates a message that the rest of the party rallies behind, then the politics of this might might even out. But right now, the Democrats are unified and behind one message, Republicans aren't. And that's the political imbalance we're seeing in the first few days of this story. And is this totally a federal responsibility? I think I read that it was first California regulators who stepped in and then basically directed to the federal government. Is there a role here for the state government? That I, and I am probably the second to last person with knowledge of the, of the banking system of any level. Um, last would be George Santos. There is, there is a role for the state government, and it is a much smaller one. Um, both Governor Newsom's office and the White House made it clear for both substantive and political reasons that Newsom was heavily engaged in discussions with the relevant federal authorities over the weekend. Um, the person to watch in this, though, is less Governor Newsom than State Senator Monique Lamont from the uh, Santa Barbara area. She's the chair of the relevant legislative committee that oversees this area. And even though while Newsom and uh, the state treasurer's office will have a much more high profile role, if there's legislation passed to address this at the state level to complement whatever Congress does, then she's the one who'll move it. And given the right now, 
because there's a Republican majority in the House and such a small Democratic majority in the Senate and the likelihood of getting 60 votes for anything in the Senate, therefore, on this, like anything else, is, is pretty small. Federal legislative remedies, as opposed to administration solutions, is pretty unlikely. So, in fact, if we are going to see legislation on this, it might not be as powerful out of Sacramento as it might be out of Congress, but it's much more likely to pass. And Senator Lamone will be the key player on that. Well, let's move on to something that is taking place in the states. Um, let's talk about abortion and Walgreens' decision recently to, uh, well, its announcement that it would stop selling the abortion pill, not only in states where it is illegal, where abortion is illegal, but also in states where Republican attorney generals threaten them, even if abortion remains legal in those states. Um, this set off, of course, a firestorm of criticism on the left. California Governor Gavin Newsom swiftly condemned the move and said the state wouldn't do business with Walgreens as a result. Um, details on that were slow to come, but eventually it was announced that uh, Walgreens, that, that the state would cancel, I think it was a $54 million contract with Walgreens for medicines for prisoners or something. Um, Melissa, what do you make of Walgreens' decision? Let's start there. They were in a tough spot. I mean, as as a lawyer, if I'm advising them and I'm, you know, and they're concerned about criminal liability, they're, they've got obligations to shareholders. Um, you know, I don't know that, you know, angering Gavin Newsom was part of the conversation. <laughs> you know, it was more like, what are the risks if we continue to do this? We need to make sure we're being, especially when the landscape is so uncertain right now in terms of how these things are going to shake out. Are attorneys general going to really go after people? I mean, it's, it's all I feel like the dust is has not yet settled. And so if you're in that room and you're trying to weigh what what your move should be, you know, uh, I don't know that I would issue a press release. <laughs> <laughs> announcing it but uh but at the very least making that decision is is in some ways understandable i mean you're you're facing criminal liability and in potential uh, you know potential losses in an area where you have to maximize shareholder value so it's um i don't it's not totally clear to me why Gavin Newsom went after them like this or why he felt like it was so outrageous that they responded to to these laws and to these threats the way they did. Um, but uh, but I'm sure Tim will tell us. <laughs> uh, um, well, was that, that I was going to move a political reaction by him or? Yeah, well, it, it, sure. I mean, it's a good move with his California Democratic political base, keeping everyone happy um, on that issue. It's certainly a good move. Uh, I, this is, we're all passing down the line. I'm going to say Dan is probably better suited than me to answer. Is California allowed to do business with anybody anymore? <laughs> Gavin is... Gavin has created a lot of rules around who we're, who we're able to do business for here. And, um, you know, that might be contributing to some of the prices in certain areas of, the, of uh, you know, uh, you know, various products in the state where it might be better if, if we were purchasing cheaper products from red states. But, you know, we banned we weren't buying products from states that pass certain bans. And, uh, you know, all of that. Um, is is right i mean i think is right on the on the merits you know for for gavin newsom to say hey in california we're going to be a sanctuary for people who want access to the abortion pill good right like hey in california we are not going to uh discriminate against trans kid you know kids that want to um uh you know uh reflect you know the, the gender identity that they choose in schools and if or or let them go let them go to the bathroom that represents their gender identity and 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 i, I think that that's Speaking and and being very clear about that and contrasting with other states is a very it's a very smart thing for Gavin to do. Like he has tended to get into this 
um, you know, a, a, a kind of sh showy for Twitter, you know, kind of political moves. It's like, hey, North Carolina did this thing I don't like, so now we're not going to do business with North Carolina. All that stuff makes me just feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? Um, I, I, like on its on the merits, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm supportive of of you know people should have access to the abortion pill, um, but like making this decision based it wasn't based on anything that has happened in California, right? If it was like Walgreens wasn't providing the abortion pill to people in Fresno, then like okay, screw Walgreens, that's like in his jurisdiction. Walgreens isn't providing the abortion pill to people in Mississippi, okay, that's bad, but like. You know, this should that you know and and you know be affecting you know actions here in California. I, I don't know. I'm, I I get a little bit more uncomfortable with that. And you see, I think why you get uncomfortable with that when you watch Ron DeSantis, for example, do the inverse of that. You know, why I'm going to target. You know, I'm, now this is not an apples to apples comparison, and we could get into the to what I think is different about them. But you know, targeting specific companies. Uh, man, I just I would like there to be a really clear rationale for that. Um, and, and I don't know if that's really here in this case. Dan, did Governor Newsom leap before he looked? Um, no, he's he's thought about this quite a bit. And to answer uh, Melissa's question, she said, I don't know why Gavin Newsom did this. Um, let me answer you. Gavin Newsom loves talking about abortion rights. The only thing he loves talking about more than abortion rights, I think, is Ron DeSantis. And look, he is a very, very skilled political communicator. And one of the things that skilled political communicators know is that they benefit a lot more from talking about issues that work to their benefit than those that don't. So talking about homelessness is complicated. Talking about flooding is frustrating. But toward Tim's point, Talking about the evils of red state America is not only enjoyable, it's politically beneficial. And I'm not taking away from the substantive work that Governor Newsom and his administration do, but from a communication standpoint, this is something he delights on. So if there is someone somewhere in America, an individual, a politician, a corporation, who does something conservative on an, so on an issue like abortion, or marriage or equality or guns. Newsom understands this is the most effective way he has to rally his base. So when he does something a little bit more difficult and perhaps necessary on housing issues, on environmental issues, on other policy concerns, he's built up a store of goodwill by doing by engaging in the kind of uh, red bashing that, that, that Tim was talking about. Real quick, before we go on, Tim, I think you'll enjoy this because I agree with you that whether it's DeSantis or Newsom, this sort of performative corporation bashing gets a little bit old. And when DeSantis is out here in California recently and the two of them were going at it head to head, mm -hmm. um, I don't think either one of them came off looking all that good except to their most loyal supporters. But this idea of banning products because of ideological uh differences is certainly nothing new. And John, you may remember this because you're as old as I am almost. Years ago, the city of Berkeley uh, City Council uh, decided to begin banning brands of premium gasoline because of the human rights abuses taking place in the countries, either in the Pacific Rim or in Africa or elsewhere, where the extraction was being done. And so one by one, the Berkeley City Council would read about a, justifiable, a, a horrible human rights outrage and would react by banning that gasoline in Berkeley. 
This went on for a while. And finally, the Berkeley police chief and fire chief had to come before the city council and point out to them that the council had banned every ban of premium gasoline in Berkeley. And therefore, there was nowhere in the city where municipal vehicles could go to fill their gas tanks. So they had to ask them, can you pick the least objectionable human rights violation just so we have somewhere to get gas? And that's Freaking not ranking. <laughs> Yeah, we've got that's ranking that's of the violations and kind of decide who, which one was the which one we can deal suck you know suck up the best. I have to admit I don't remember which one was the least objectionable, and I don't say this to make light of the horrible human rights abuses. But Tim, I think your point is a good one that when politicians decide to take substantive actions based on ideological distinctions, whether it's DeSantis and Disney whether it's Newsom and Walgreens, whether it's Berkeley and, and oil producers, what they're doing at that point is they're putting the immediate needs of their constituents second. And from a moral standpoint, there are times that it might need to happen. But where I agree with your point is that politicians like DeSantis and Newsom and plenty others over rely on that technique. And as objectionable as you may find a potential ban on this medication, I don't know that banning uh, a, uh, a drugstore from operating the state and reacting to it is does does your constituents much good. I would contrast this actually with the state of Illinois, also a heavily Democratic uh, government there. The governor, uh, Jay Pritzker, and the attorney general, uh, uh, I believe it's Kwame Raoul, both have criticized Walgreens for it. On the other hand, they also met with the CEO of Walgreens, which is based in Illinois. And the attorney general afterward was kind of saying, well, wasn't kind of saying, he said, I, you know, I don't like this decision. I understand the problems they're going through, though. I mean, he, it, to me, it just seemed kind of he was not going for the quick performative, darn them, where I'm going to buy my Harry's shaving cream somewhere else. I mean, it was... Okay, this is this is an actual legal uh, jeopardy that they're in in certain places, and it's gonna it could cost them easily much more than the fifty more million a year to lose in in California. John, if I can just weigh in on this real quick, in fairness to Governor Newsom and Attorney General Bonta here, um, Walgreens' home is in Illinois, right? So if you're the Attorney General or the Governor of Illinois, um, it's a much more complicated situation. Passing them. It's sort of the way that Newsom sucks up to Elon Musk when he has the opportunity to. Yeah. So I think your broader point is the good one. I noticed that as it's well. The right one. Dan. I'm sorry? I said I did notice that as well, that he was doing the buddy buddy picture with Elon Musk, you know, just like a few days before banning Walgreens. You know, well, and if you're Governor Pritzker and if you're Governor Pritzker or the Attorney General of Illinois, Walgreens is a major port part of your employment and, and tax base also. But regardless of their motivation for doing so, John, it is the right point. You know, if you are a company that distributes medication and you don't know who's going to be elected president next year and you don't know how the U.S. Supreme Court is going to decide this Texas case if and when it gets there, you really don't know. There really, there really isn't a clear path on, 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 on how to respond. And Walgreens, a government affairs representative, who incidentally is Governor Newsom's former chief of staff, did make it clear to the governor and his staff that Walgreens isn't doing anything differently than the other pharmaceutical distributors are. They're just saying out loud 
what the other pharmaceutical companies are, are struggling with, which is how do you decide which government entity to respect, knowing that you could end up on the wrong side of the courts either way? There's a PR lesson here. Sometimes saying nothing is better. Yeah. And corporate America, there's a bias towards saying something and sometimes saying nothing. Future business school. Yeah. Business school class. What not to do. Case in point, Walgreens. Well, thanks, Dan. I appreciate you answering my question. I didn't I didn't put, you know, rank political, <laughs> you know, political grasping, uh, you know, on, on the list. So I appreciate that. <laughs> well, and, and in fairness, and seriously, in, in, in defense of the governor, he does believe very strongly about the defense of reproductive rights, but it is a gold-plated political opportunity for him, and there was no way he was going to let it pass. Um, I should note that if you ever visit Chicago, or the next time you visit Chicago, um, go to the First United Methodist Church in the Chicago Temple, which is a skyscraper in downtown Chicago, and take the trip all the way up to the 23rd or whatever floor at the base of the spire, and you can go to the Walgreens Memorial Sky Chapel. Um, it's in the Guinness Book of World Records. What? The the founder of Walgreens was a member of the church when he passed away. His wife endowed it. It's my former church, so I have to put in a bullet. Okay. Um, let's talk about uh, some other questionable PR, um, and this would be the Dominion lawsuit fight with Fox News. Um, for a while now, we've been treated to the release of text messages and and I think email messages and depositions um, in this centered around this whole lawsuit between Dominion Voting Systems, I think I have the full name correct there, and Fox News and what Fox News has said about Dominion and its uh, attempt to overthrow democracy or something. I don't know. Um, Tim, what have we learned so far that you think is either the most significant or just makes you want to yeah. write your next book about that Republicans. <laughs> um, I guess I, I, I think there was a little bit of you are who we thought you were about Fox um, to this. And so I think the areas to me that I found the most interesting were um, you kind of actually just how far afield they were from in private from what was happening on air. Right. I, I, you know, you look, we all always knew that none of these guys like Donald Trump. Right. Like they all thought he was an idiot. They all thought he was a buffoon and he won. And, you know, to keep the business afloat, you know, they turned it into a Donald Trump propaganda network and it was a totally cynical move. But every, everyone is. No, that's not like really been a big secret. Uh, there have been plenty of plenty of books written about that. Um, and uh, so the interesting thing about, to me about all these emails was. You know, actually, it went much further than much much further than that. There was one I, I grabbed that really grabbed me. It was Tucker talking to his producer. He said, "That's the last four years. We're we're all pretending we've got a lot to show for it because admitting what a disaster it's been is too tough to digest. But come on, there really isn't an upside to Trump. I mean, that could have been on the Bulwark podcast. I mean, Tucker would have just fit on right on in, and the never uh, the never Trumpers. I you know, I, there there there's been this kind of uh, this." lie that they've told which is which is that oh you know we rationalize our actions because you know we liked his policies and he did a lot of good stuff and you know the the lamestream media is unfair to him and they attack him and yeah he sends he sends a couple of tweets that are all too hot and you know yeah you know sometimes he you know shoots from the hip but but overall it's been really good right like that's the story that they've told 
themselves and their audience. And these text messages reveal like they don't even believe that story. Like it's not like we all knew they hated Trump in private, but like they now they hate him and they think he's bad and 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 they think that he's damaging the country. And yet still. They continued to push forth with it. And so I thought that was most revealing and the the Murdoch text about about letting Lindell back on the air by saying the decision was not about uh, red or blue, but about green, uh, which, again, is something we knew. But it's like, dude, you put that on email. <laughs> like, like, that's something you think. But uh, man, uh, so I, I thought that those are the things that really stood out to me the most. Melissa, tell us about the legal vulnerabilities of Fox. Well, first of all, having gone through, you know, when you're doing a lawsuit, you're going to ask for all the text messages. You're going to ask for all the emails. You're going to ask for, and they're going to send you, they're going to drown you in it, right? They can't not give it to you. So the other the other way they try to prevent you from finding this stuff is by giving you like terabytes worth of stuff. And so, I, and so I've done this thing where you have to sit and search and like, da-da. And I can't imagine what was going on in the office <laughs> when they came across some of these things. Like the dance of joy these poor beleaguered associates were doing at three o'clock in the morning. Like, holy shit, did you see this? <laughs> like, call them, call them, call them. Like, the, like, I've had, I've done these things and like, not like this, but you know what I mean? Like, I know what that's like to just be like bleary eyed and just like another box of stuff to dig through. And like, this is amazing. This is like every lawyer's dream to find these things. It's truly remarkable. So there's so number one, there's that. But to Tim's point, I mean, it's weird, like for as a viewer, you always wonder, do they believe what they're saying? Because there's always this question. Are you this in in it or do you actually or do you know that you're lying? Do you know? Do you know you're lying? And that legally, that's actually the question. Like, do you know you're lying? And that's really what they're fighting about. Um, and and so I always wondered. And so for me, I was like, oh, oh, they know they're lying. OK, well, now we know which camp they're in. Um Whereas there are folks on the left who are like, we would never do that. And it's like, well, then you believe the things that you say. And I don't know which is worse sometimes. But there is this idea of you're saying these things, you're putting yourself out there. When I was anchoring, I would constantly fight with the writers because they would put something in the teleprompter. And I would say, this is wrong, or I disagree, or I'm not going to say this. And they would say, you know, just say it. And I would say, no, because people at home see this face. And when I say words, they think I believe this. Like, they think... I'm telling the truth as I understand it about the fire or about City Hall or about whatever it is I'm talking about. And so it it's such a breach of trust to find out that the people who are speaking to you and like you really as a somebody on TV, you really have to protect that trust at all costs. And just to totally prostitute it like they like they were doing is so is so upsetting. And I, I don't really know how this is going to go from a viewer perspective. I think legally they are absolutely screwed. Like there there's there's so many admissions in here. Actually the problem with this case is that it's so kind of big, right? Usually it's like this dude said this thing and this and this why, is the defamation. Why do you think they've settled that? If you if you think that they're screwed. That's the thing I can't get my head around. I don't like the the PR damage for this is just catastrophic. They must think that they can win. Well, Domin- a Dominion might be making a, a really big demand and maybe wanting to do something like like what Peter Thiel did with Gawker. Like we want to inflict like mortal damage yeah. to this network. Like we're here on a on a mission. It is inconceivable to me that Dominion has the amount of money that they are spending on lawyers to pay for this lawsuit. Right. right? 
inconceivable. The lawyers are being paid by someone, and it is probably not Dominion, uh, or these people are on a retainer that is so huge um, that that the settlement would have to be just a metric ton to pay for the the legal fees. So Dominion is not, you know, they don't have this in their bank account. We're talking about just a huge amount of money, millions and millions of dollars for the attorneys so far. So maybe that the demand is is super big. And so Fox doesn't feel like it can do that. Um, But, you know, maybe they still feel like they'll just go up to the Supreme Court where they're where they they think maybe they'll have a, a, a nice audience. Uh, There are two headlines here I want to share. One is the New York Times. It wrote, Fox's PR woes may not directly translate to legal ones. The Los Angeles Times wrote, Dominion's defamation suit puts Fox News in serious jeopardy. Um, So kind of to this point, Dan, it's like a Schrodinger's cat thing. I mean, they're they're screwed. They're not screwed. What do you make of it? I learned a long time ago never to question Melissa on anything, particularly legal matters. Um, but the counter argument, and I'm not smart enough to know whether it's, it's valid or not, but clearly what Fox believes and any number of media observers believe, well, let me put aside what Fox believes. Um, this is clearly, it's morally reprehensible, this, this, this difference between public statements and private, in, in, in private conversations. But if it's morally reprehensible, what we don't know is that if it's a violation of the law or not. Um, the standards for libel in this country, as Melissa knows much better than I do, are extremely high. And unlike in Great Britain, for example, in order to be found guilty of libel, you have to be judged to be have willfully uh, uh, maligned someone. And what Fox's argument is, which at least some people believe, while morally inconsistent, is legally yeah, is legally valid, is that even though the journalists, you know, doubted or personally rejected uh, Trump's argument that they were interviewing both sides. And when the president of the United States and his representatives, regardless of the president's representative's hair job, is if they're making an argument, that is newsworthy. So, like I said, the moral and the legal standards here are different. And uh, that's fine. That's yeah, but that's, yeah, that's me. That's true for some of them more like the Lou Dobbs, the Maria Bertiromo. And it's true kind of for the big three, right? Like Tucker and Laura, or like it was really more interviewing Powell. But I mean, Lou Dobbs was out there. Being like they're inside the computer. Uh, you know, what I mean, like, like they they had some hosts, particularly on the business, Fox business side that were making pretty well, explicit statements. Well, you're, 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 you're exactly right, Tim. And so what what those media organizations, the mainstream organizations that think that Fox might be able to get off this legally, they're making a variation of the point that you just did, saying that while a few of their more fringe broadcasters are doing this, most of their more prominent names weren't, and maybe that leads to a settlement. But if I can, John, just to, to bring up another po- a related point real quick, not about the legality, but just about the what this says about media and what this says about media audience. There's a famous quote that I know many of our audience has, has heard before. The late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to like to say, you're entitled to your own opinion. You're not entitled, entitled to your own facts. But of course, in 2023, in a cable, in a digital universe, the majority of the American news audience does believe that they're entitled to their own facts. And whether it's on Fox or to a lesser degree than on MSNBC, and certainly even more so online, they choose their media source very deliberately 
so that media source will reinforce their existing beliefs. Fox, more than any other media organization, helped develop this concept. And now it's coming back to bite them. Because if you read these emails, which I know most of you did, what to me was really interesting is Fox was worried, not from an ideological standpoint, from a business standpoint. They were worried that they were losing too many viewers. And they weren't worried for a moment that they were losing those viewers to CNN, or of course not to MSNBC. They were worried that they were losing those viewers to even more ultra-conservative uh, platforms, to Newsmax and, and the others. And so they created a news audience that expects to be told a version of the world that they want to hear. And then when Fox occasionally veered away from that version of the world, they began to get frightened that their audience was going to abandon them for someone who did tell that audience what they want to hear. Um, for Fox News in the long run, financially and legally, it's a huge challenge. But I'd, I'd, I'd love, if, there were, if there's time, to hear Tim and Melissa's thoughts on what this does for advocacy media, gener advocacy media generally. If you know, we together have created these audiences that expect to be told things that don't challenge our beliefs, but rather reinforce them, um, what happens when you don't keep telling your audience what they want to hear? I'm going to take that and, and kind of direct it. I want to hear both of you, but Tim, I mean, you, you work with the bulwark and I occasionally, if you listen to podcasts and, and do the, the Thursday night live streams, um, you'll I'll hear one of you guys talk about, well, we're getting a lot of pushback from, you know, <laughs> our democratic uh, supporters and readers about, uh, you know, something we've said. Um, yeah, look, I think that speaks to how big of a challenge it is. Audience capture is this term, right? Is a is a challenge even for people acting in good faith, right? Like even at the bulwark, I I find it sometimes it's like a tick, you know. Or sometimes I will say I will do like a little wind up, you know, just like, well, I know you're not going to like this one, but um, xxx, right? And I notice that uh, the dispatch is is a is another outlet that's like a little more to the right of us, and I I listen to them to kind of check myself sometimes, and they do the opposite tick right to their conservative audience. Like I'll do a wind up and be like, now I know you guys are sick of hearing me complain about DeSantis and Disney, but I have to say, right? And so even in in these kind of more niche outlets that are that have a more highly educated audience that are trying to act in good faith, like audience capture is still hard. Like media is still a business. You even if it even if it isn't about the green, which it kind of always is a little bit, it's also about ego and wanting to have a big audience and wanting people and and just human frailty, like wanting to be liked, right? Um and so like there is all of those pressures like exist like no matter what in media and we have to, you know, all work against them and 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 just challenge ourselves to like be open to other points of view. Now, Okay, that's just on this minor scale. Now we have the, these massive, you know, it's 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 way worse on the right, and I can get to why. But like we have these massive, like you know, huge audience conglomerates, right? That that totally exist based on telling their audience what to hear, right? And, and so uh, you know, and they have, uh, and they're a much more mass media audience. So like there there's some people in the audience that aren't as you know familiar with the kind of tools of how to navigate through information and decide what's good and what's BS. And so they're just they're just feeding a lot of BS to folks. And now each of those, as we see in the Fox case, are getting challenged by even more, you know, propagandistic, you know, outlets. Right. I was at CPAC last week for the circus and 
Fox isn't even there anymore, right? Like there's this whole media row of insane people that you guys have never heard of, right? That like people who have left Fox because Fox at all challenges them, you know, in their thinking. And it's like Steve Bannon and Mike Lindell and like like people that I've never even recognized who are getting mobbed, right? Who like have these little niche fames. And it's like that is this challenge in this new world is where we can all to, to back to dance point where we can all choose our own reality. You know, that that leads people down a radicalization spiral. And like the worst example of that is January 6th. Um, and and I, I, I don't I don't think that a lot of people recognize like a lot of times as always we're fighting the last war. Like when you're talking about what's happening on Fox, like the proliferation of outlets, you know, that are out there for people that want, you know, whether it's on social, on TikTok, on podcasts, on radio, of the, for people to get exactly what they want to hear. Now there's this ability to live in a completely surround sound world, right? Like in the, even in the battle, even with Rush, right? If you lived in Iowa and listened to Rush, that was only three hours, right? Like you still had the ag report that you got at noon. You still had Tom Brokaw at six. You still had the local person at five, right? Like that's not even true anymore. And and I think that's it's a deeply dangerous thing that a lot of folks haven't really grappled with. Sorry, that was a long answer, but Melissa, can you answer on a shorter? <laughs> I'll just say this. It's um look, we're all, you know, relatively, you know, experienced folks at, at talking about politics. Any one of us could be on a much bigger platform if we were willing to say the things that people say to get those kind of clicks that kind of traffic you could be on one of those crazy crazy right-wing things if you were willing to lie that's the thing once you make that lie once you make that deal with the devil and you say forget my credibility it's about the green then then that's it now you're creating a monster you cannot control and that is what has happened uh and now it is out of control and now they do have like all these little like weird I get emails all the time, all these little weird, you know, right wing outlets. They're just, you know, bananas. Um, and but it, it starts with that initial break. It starts that initial like, well, let's just spin it like this. We're going to spin it a little more. We're going to spin it a little more. We're going to spin it a little more. And now and that's what's so upsetting about what the Fox News text and things show is they showed they knew they were lying and they had made that deal and they were so cavalier about it that they were willing to just text like i secretly hate this guy what are you saying uh you know and so that's the that's the point that when you cross and that's why that when you cross you create the monster and that's why it's so important to make sure you always feel like you're telling the truth even when you're pulled to you know and there are lots of great you know forces pulling you to say outrageous stuff so you get more twitter followers or blah 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 resisting that urge is is so important to um to maintaining you know to keeping things on the rails for those of us who are old enough to remember when walter cronkite was uh, a fixture on the cbs evening news people didn't know what his politics were it wasn't until after he retired he basically said hey i'm a liberal mm-hmm. you wouldn't have guessed it watching him do the news well does anybody else believe, does anybody else believe that john zipper is old enough to remember walter cronkite i certainly don't i remember his retirement um, I want to talk about a uh, mayoral election that uh, is halfway across the country, but that I kind of want to explore. Does it have uh, potential impact elsewhere in the country? And that is Chicago again. Um, when you're there visiting the temple, um, you might pick up on some of the local politics because there is a runoff in the primary for the mayoral election. Incumbent Mayor Lori Lightfoot lost. She came in third out of a long list. 
So she did not make the runoff, which I believe takes place in April. Um, she became the only the second incumbent Chicago mayor um, in recent memory to lose a bid for a second term, uh, for what it's worth. The other was the first female mayor of the city, Jane Byrne. Now, Lightfoot's defeat has largely been chalked up to concerns over crime and policing. Two surviving candidates in the April runoff markedly differ on crime and policing, with Paul Vallis supporting tougher policing and Brandon Johnson trying to downplay past comments he had made supporting defund the police movements. Tim, is, could this have an impact you see beyond Chicagoland? Because Lori Lightfoot was not some radical super lefty on, on crime and policing. I mean, yeah. I, like I, this, this is, here we go. We're now policing uh, everybody's own uh, uncomfortable priors, which is important to do. I, like, I, I don't think there's a silver bullet to it. Like, I think that w- the, what is underneath the frustrations about crime in the cities is a lot. There's a lot of pandemic related stuff. There's a lot of cultural related stuff and there's policing related issues. And so some of that is within control of, of local politicians. Some of it's not. I did a interview with Brooke Jenkins here. I don't know what everybody thinks about her um, for, for the bulwark a couple of weeks ago. And I, you know, I think that she's pretty clear eyed about, I I'm trying to offer a path that is progressive, but also that says we have to have rules and like we have to have laws and we can't just have people like walking into t- to CVS and, you know, taking out a bunch of stuff and then, you know, selling it on the street and then going back in the next day and like, if it's Walgreens, it's okay though. Walgreens, yeah, it's Walgreens, yeah. I mean, nobody really wants, like, it's, like I asked her this directly, it's like nobody wants somebody that is stealing toothpaste because, or, uh, you know, or essentials for their kids because they can't afford it to like go to prison, right? Nobody wants that. But we do want people that are like professional criminals to have to have accountability for their actions, right? That the same is true of drug users versus drug dealers, right? How do you deal with all that? And 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 I just think that this is a problem that has risen. I think that in a lot of places, Democrats like want that these are all mostly Democratic ones run cities, like want to kind of point the finger and point the blame other places. But when you're in charge, like as a politician, you have to be accountable for what's happening. You have to under you have to at least project to the city that you recognize there's problems and we're trying to deal with it. And Lightfoot just like wasn't that good at that. She tried to do it by like what you know, she was defensive, she was, you know, and, and so in 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 these places right now, in these cities where where people are frustrated about and i think school it's true about schools too schools and crime like you have to express oh we're trying I, I, i'm trying to offer a different plan it'll be interesting to see what happens in that runoff and the, the candidates could not be any more different in chicago and you know we saw this here in oakland and in san francisco people are frustrated with crime people are frustrated with with homelessness and in oakland like we elected you know, kind of far left progressives that have one path for dealing with that. And in San Francisco, they threw out Chesa and like replaced him with Brooke. So I, I don't know that anybody has developed a good answer yet, but, but I, I think the main takeaway is like, is, is Democrats need to recognize that they need, that there is a problem, try to offer a path to, to that, that demonstrates that they're going to try to address it or else they're going to get thrown out on their ass. And I think that's going to be true a bunch of different places. Melissa, your thoughts? Well, so the runoff is of these two these two gentlemen who are sort of left in the race, and um, one is, as you said, a sort of trying to distance himself from his defund the police position, but but has been clear about not um, advocating for hiring more police or expanding police presence. Um, and then on the other side, you have someone who's really law and order. Now he's he is a technically a Democrat, 
I, some Democrats might disagree with his self-identification as a Democrat, but uh, but he is a Democrat, too. Um, and so there still is a left and a right in the race. It's not that she, you know, she was, you know, on the on the left side. But um, there is still this election that's going to come. That's going to be really interesting to see who, you know, this is a very clear <laughs> uh, decision point. And uh, as you said, I, I host a betting podcast and one of the betting lines is on this race. And it looks like, you know, at least the folks who bet on politics um, seem to think that uh, that the law and order candidate has a much better shot of winning. But then again, those are these are not Chicago people. So who knows? But but that the outcome will be much, I think, more informative. David Axelrod had a great article about Lori Lightfoot and basically talked about how she, in addition to what people perceive as not addressing crime also alienated a lot of the natural Democrat constituencies. She had an issue with the teachers union. Y'all might have read about like a strike um, last year. Um, so she and she angered some of the folks on, on the the aldermen's, uh, the, some of the various aldermen. So they there was some other issues. So we kind of have that gone. And now we're we really do have a sort of left versus right as well. Y'all are Bay Area people. You know what kind of left and right is here. You know, so it's kind of left and right. Eh. Uh, but but, you know, that that election and that those results, I think, will be will be really far more telling about, like, you know, what the, what the folks in Chicago are thinking. I am not a better um, again, Methodist. But uh, <laughs> if I were, I would. I'll, I'll bet Paul Vallis will win by a large amount. Just the way, I mean, this is a city that had two mayors for life who were basically conservative law and order mayors. Um, and They're like, I, we could put up with corruption, just like keep the streets safe. <laughs> honestly, honestly, yeah. If you, if you, this, uh, oh, come on, we're in San Francisco where half of the city government's being investigated by the FBI. Um, John, John, there's one other aspect of the, uh, issue that you raised earlier that I just wanted to take a shot at. Please. Um, you asked if there w- would be a national impact um, uh, because of this. And I would argue that, in fact, there already there already has been. Uh, first of all, uh, the Melissa Axelrod axis are right about this. Lightfoot lost badly for two reasons. One, uh, voters are very interested. Voters are very upset about crime. And as Tim correctly pointed out, when you're in charge, you get too much blame or too much credit, depending on the situation. But second, she has systematically alienated over the last four years every major political and community stakeholder in the city uh, on policy differences like with teacher unions and just a very uh, abrasive and very confrontational personal aspect that has driven away uh, individuals that ought to have been natural allies when you can make Hillary Clinton and Ron DeSantis look like they have good, warm, fuzzy people skills, you probably need a little bit of you probably need a little bit of work in that regard in a, in a different light foot. But within hours, within a day after the polls had closed in Chicago, President Biden announced that he was going to sign a Republican bill in Congress that was going to overturn the District of Columbia's efforts to lessen penalties on some violent crimes in that city, and it became very clear. The overwhelming majority of Democrats in Congress were going to vote with him. Now, look in a in a two party system, uh, the part both parties are going to have internal divisions, and just like the Republicans are currently divided on entitlements and on Ukraine and any number of other issues, Democrats perennially um, are divided on crime and public safety issues. And when Biden announced that he was going to sign the Republican bill. Uh, the more progressive voices in the party on criminal justice issues 
accused him of putting politics uh, ahead of principles. And I would argue that whether or not you think they are the correct principles or not, these are Joe Biden's principles. In the 1990s, he he, he uh, sponsored the crime bill that Bill Clinton ultimately signed into law. In 2020, in the aftermath um, of the quote unquote defund the police debate, Joe Biden went on national television to say fund the police, fund the police, fund the police. This is who he is. And it's worth noting that in the 2020 primary, many progressives turned to him, not just on this issue, but more broadly, because even if their hearts were with Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris, they wanted to beat Donald Trump. And regardless of the fact that many, many progressives object strenuously to a Paul Ballas or Joe Biden approach to crime, they knew intuitively that it was that type of approach that was much more likely to defeat Trump than a more progressive candidate. So to me, like I said, both parties have these internal debates. I'm not seeing how Democrats, we did talk about the baffling place that Republicans are on Social Security and Medicare for hours. But this criminal justice debate has gone on within the Democratic Party for decades. And as long as we have a two-party system, it will never be resolved. Well, let's move on. Um, I want to talk briefly about uh, a bill passed by the Tennessee legislature recently attacking drag performances, um, which apparently was a major threat to life in that state. It, so it bans what it calls adult cabaret performances in public or in the presence of children. Um, according to NPR, at least nine GOP-led state legislatures are uh, pushing similar anti-drag bills. Melissa, are these more message signaling bills, or do you think they're actually going to do something? It's not clear to me that these are lawful at all. I suspect I, they sound very unconstitutional to me. Um, and they're vague. I read the statute in Tennessee, and it says, you know, any um, any striptease or um, male to female or female to male impersonators who are who whose purpose is to arouse a prurient interest. Uh, the prurient interest. Interest. The bosom buddy repeats are are safe. Well, it's just like you know, just sexually explicit stuff. And but that's really hard to define. Uh, and so I suspect that what's going to happen is um is it's going to go into effect in July. This is my. All right, I'm just going to call it right now. It's going to go into effect in July. Some hilarious drag queens are going to walk right into the public library, put on a show, demand to be arrested, uh, and then we will have a court challenge to uh, to this law that will, um, you know, that will, you know, potentially, you know, get it get it overturned. But it does seem like on its face, if Mrs. Doubtfire wanted to sit down and read a book, it would be okay because it really does tie everything to sexual. You didn't find her to be hot. Um, <laughs> um, learning so much. <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean? Like if it's if it's not sexually suggestive, it seems like it would be OK. And it's banned in public places or places where a child might see it. And so that's that's how they're kind of getting around and how the um, the governor is distancing himself and his own um, pictures of himself in a dress uh, at, from what the law is banning. He's like, well, that wasn't a drag show. Drag, you know, like the cabaret show is sexual. That was just me, you know, dressed like. Hey, just making fun of the fairies. It was just me making yeah, not, not a big deal. Yeah, but you know, so that that was the distinction. So it does seem like there are certain things that would be permitted, but um, but I still suspect there's almost no way you can enforce this law that is a, that is 
specific and, and constitutional. So I suspect it'll be. And and I and if you anyone who knows, you know, people who participate in drag shows, they will very meek and and uh they will not gonna they will up. make a sh- this will be um something that at least some brave brave souls will make you know into a okay into, into quite a show i can imagine like the sisters of perpetual indulgence like yeah. well speak, speaking like of holding a ball with this <laughs> speaking of can I, can I admit some, uh sorry go ahead dan if i can just admit something to the audience john um I remember the TV show Bosom Buddies. That was the first time I saw Tom Hanks in an acting role. I liked Mrs. Doubtfire. I watched The Birdcage. I even liked Some Like It Hot. And if that makes me a a deviant, then I guess that's something I'm just going to have to struggle <laughs> to live with. Um, but on balance, this is to your to your point. This is a messaging bill. And both parties do this. This is obviously a, a, a conservative example of a way to fire up their base on an issue that's not really of any general concern. Um, but if you talk about something loudly enough and angrily enough, you can get people angry about it. Um, we've probably given it more attention than it deserves, but. I like the birdcage. Can I? Yeah, I'm glad you like the birdcage. We agree on that. Can I just <laughs> offer just a different? I, I take it a little more seriously than that. I, I think it's worse than a messaging bill. I, I don't. Um, for starters, this is not really directly to the bill, but I think all of the rhetoric and and all of the language targeting drag performers is dangerous. Uh, we've already seen like Oath Keepers and like other far right freaks showing up outside of drag story hours places. Uh, you know, people are being menaced. I think that I think there's very good reason to be concerned about state public safety. Uh, but I also don't I, I just am less sanguine than you guys about the fact that nothing will happen. I, I, had, I had an exchange with Governor Huckabee's office about this. I, I wrote an article about this for The Bulwark. Um, our friend, Governor Huckabee, everyone loves Sarah. Uh, and she, um, uh, it wasn't with her, it was with her spokesperson. And I was like, doesn't this, because they have the same bill as Tennessee. And I was like, doesn't this bill ban drag in your state? Or excuse me, ban pride, ban gay pride in your state. Isn't gay, like isn't L- Little Rock pride banned now in your state? And they're like, no, that's, you know, that's a parade and that's fine. And people could do that and wave the flags. And I was like, have you been to a pride? And they're like, <laughs> you know, yes. And I was like, hey, did you see anything prurient there? <laughs> because I have. And so what is going to happen there? I don't know. There. You know, does it is does this just mean one officer like walking by this thing is gonna you know be a cowboy and decide that like they're gonna shut be shutting these things down? I I don't know. I we'll see. Maybe nothing comes, but maybe it's just a messaging bill. But I think when you combine it with the targeting of trans kids and and um when when you know you think about how this can be operationalized, I, I think it's a you know it's certainly something to be pissed about. Well, and I think it's certainly something with, some, with a real threat. That's a good point. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be glib. No, no, I didn't mean to, I didn't say they were. No, there's plenty of stuff to make fun of, also, and we can be glib and make fun of them. But I, I do, I just think that yeah. I think that potentially there's a more serious outcome. But I, but, but I think also, um, yeah, if I can, Tim, I think your point is right. Uh, but I wouldn't conflate this bill with some of the legislation targeting transgender youth. Um, to me, they both emanate from the same place on the political spectrum. Um, but I really do believe that while the discussion about how to work with and support a young person who's genuinely confused about their identity is a legitimate policy and cultural and social decision, 
I don't equate that. And therefore I have a difficult time conflating that um, with whether Tom Hanks or Robin Williams should wear dresses or not. I mean, to me, they're two very different uh, challenges in in terms of scope and and, and intensity. We we kind of laugh sometimes when we talk about Tennessee or uh, Arkansas, Um, but literally today the Commonwealth Club canceled a program that was going to be held tomorrow where the speaker is a Sacramento-based transgender activist. And it was because she pulled out because she was getting death threats. And uh, as far as I know, that's the first time the Commonwealth Club has canceled a program for that purpose. And it annoys me. Um, Therefore, I want to talk about Randy McNally. And Tim, can you tell us about Tennessee's lieutenant governor and his prurient interests? Yeah, I I don't Randy, like, this is a tough one for me because I just, on the one hand... Uh, he has a down the line, you know, anti LGBTQ record. Um, and in, in, in Tennessee, I guess he's had some softer rhetoric than maybe some of your most hateful anti gay politicians. But like his voting record is pretty anti gay, and he seems. I feel bad for. I just I, I feel bad for this person. I you know he was born in the wrong time in the wrong place probably. Um, but uh, he's seventy nine years old. Uh, he's great grandfather, and he has been on Instagram uh liking and and putting fire emojis and heart emojis on the picture of young androgynous looking guys i guess i won't say boys they're over eight but we can say scantily clad very scantily clad um butt pictures the whole deal um and uh and and he got confronted about this because of the ban because not just the drag ban but the other anti-lgbtq bills that are going through in tennessee right now and did an interview where like his face is like beat purple and he's just like, I just like to be encouraging of my constituents and all this. <laughs> you know, it's giving me really hardcore Larry Craig flashbacks and um He's using the same PR firm as Walgreens and Fox. Yeah. And so I don't know. It's a it's a sad situation really for all for all involved. Um, except for I guess the main young man who who's been who now has a lot more instagram followers so i guess that's the only only silver lining he is a constituent yeah oh, okay well at least- he is a constituent <laughs> and, but- and actually the the young man's comments about this this lieutenant governor are interesting they're not he's not totally destroying him he's, he's not mad yeah he's basically saying well he seemed to really be interested and i disagree with his views and I guess I'm not going to really expect deep thoughts from an Instagram model. influencer. Influencer, yes, yeah. but uh, it it it's an interesting and it's like these things are going to come back. I talked to Chris Hayes about this a little bit last week, and it's just like we hadn't had these stories for a while, right? Because these state legislatures weren't trying to advance anti-gay bills, and so now it like feels like we have a flashback to Larry Craig time, right? Because if like politicians are going to be doing this, then people are going to start looking through their personal lives again, and there's you know still going to be a lot of a lot of hypocrites out there. Folks, well, thank you all for coming out, and thank you for everyone who's watching or listening on time. Thank you to our great panel, Melissa Kane, Tim Miller, and of course, the digital Dan Schnur. Hi, Danny. Thank have you, Dan. Week, everybody, take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. 
Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.